2021 marks the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of insulin. So what is the history of insulin and how has insulin therapy evolved since that initial discovery? And what does the use of insulin mean for people living with diabetes? Well, we're going to find out with Dr. Linda Gaudiani, medical director and co-founder of the Marin Health Braden Diabetes Center. This is The Healing Podcast, brought to you by Marin Health. I'm Bill Klaproth. Dr. Gaudiani, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And on a special occasion, it's the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of insulin. So we're looking forward to hearing from you about how insulin came about, the changes throughout the years, and where we're at today. So let me start with this, Dr. Gaudiani. Can you tell us a little bit about diabetes care before insulin was discovered? What was the prognosis like for people with diabetes back then? Thank you so much for having me, first of all. And Bill, it is always good to talk to you. And to feel like I can reach out to other folks this way. It's such a special year that's been celebrated, not only nationally, but internationally, because the discovery of insulin impacted the entire world. And happily, it was discovered in North America. It was discovered by Canadian scientists working eventually and closely with American scientists. There's a backstory on that. There were German and other European scientists working as early as the mid-1800s, 1860 to 1880. And they discovered that if you took the pancreas out of dogs, they developed what looked like type 1 diabetes. They started getting sick and urinating and lost weight and died. I don't know the backstory as to why they were doing those pancreatectomies, but I think actually in those days, one of the things that research were doing was they were removing different organs to see what would happen to animals to try to get these answers. What do these organs do? What do they make? We didn't know any of that then. So these poor animals that were sacrificed led to the first huge hint, which was that when you took the pancreas out of a dog, he developed what looked like diabetes. So then, would it be possible if you put this material back into individuals who have diabetes, could you cure them? Remember, we're talking about 150 years ago. So science was very different, right? Very crude then. Yeah. And these were two very young guys, Banting and Best, were in their 20s. Isn't that amazing? One was just out of medical school and another was a researcher. And what they did was they took this pancreatite from animals, the crude material, and they tried crushing and purifying it and making a crude extract. And what they found was that if that crude extract was given back to animals and eventually in experimental settings to humans, you could bring the blood sugars down. Voila. So that was 1921. That was the official discovery of insulin? That was the official discovery. That was when the the first patent was actually sold to Eli Lilly. Wow, interesting. I believe at about that time. And guess what? You've probably heard this story, but guess what that patent for all of insulin was sold for? Oh, my Lord. I don't know, but I, I'm sure we're going to be like, what? No, what was it? One dollar. Wow. How about that? And within a period of months, millions of doses were being given in a very short period of time. 
of course, a lot of those people got sick. Remember, this was not easy. This was a crude, thick, viscous material, and it came from animals, which meant, although they didn't know this, humans were going to get immunologic reactions. So this was an extract that was given in big glass syringes with big needles because it was thick. It had to be given under the skin because they tried taking it orally. It had to be given intravenously. A lot of people got rashes, swelling, tremendous pain at the injection site. But if I can circle back, Bill, to answer another question you asked me at the beginning, what was this disease like? The fact was this disease was completely fatal. Type 1 diabetes now. We're talking about type 1 diabetes, the type which usually affected only young children in those days and young adults. And they uniformly died within a few years. It was just pathetic and terrible to go back and look at the stories of those young children and young adolescents and young people. The only treatment available was to severely limit their intake of carbohydrates since carbohydrates rapidly are metabolized to glucose. And if you could severely limit that, they could survive for short periods of time on just proteins. But essentially, these children starved and got down to these incredibly thin body weights and eventually passed. So it was even more fatal in a way than polio, which left crippled and did kill many youngsters in those days as well. But no one ever came out of type 1 diabetes without insulin in those days. Yeah, this was brutal. So it was worth going through all of that at the time, the pain at injection point, the rashes, the illness, the immune response, right? They couldn't purify in those days. They couldn't get all the other proteins out. They could crush it. They finally made a preparation that appeared to have a lot of insulin in it, but it had other things from the pancreas in it as well that they just couldn't purify in those days. But it was worth it, right? Because the other option is starving to death. So let's go through this to try to get this insulin in. Exactly. There's a beautiful story I reread as I was thinking about this last night and today, and this story sits on my desk. I always have it there. It was published in, I think, the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it really goes back and chronicles the story of the first American to receive insulin injections, and his name was Jim Dexter Havens. And he was, I think, 15 years old in 1915 when he got his diagnosis. Just going through his growth spurt, he got up to five feet, eight inches. He weighed 80 pounds. Oh, okay. Imagine that. Yeah. And his father was an executive with Eastman Kodak and was a longtime friend of George Eastman. And because they were more educated and he had some friends who were doing research and calling and trying to figure out what was available. Eventually, he connected with Dr. Banting in Canada, and Dr. Banting sent him some of the first insulin that he had made because he made such a big plea. And when the father first gave his son this injection, he got violently ill. And the story is that Dr. Banting actually got on a train and came to the States to administer the following injections. And although they just didn't know the dose, can you imagine? I mean, they had no idea how much to give. And these were children that were already very, very sick. So they weren't just 
somebody with modest elevation of blood sugars. They were pre-morbid. But eventually, they found the dose. They gave enough. And it's a beautiful story. It chronicles the next few years. It wasn't all an overnight miracle, but it was a miracle. Eventually, he got well enough that he gained back to about 150 pounds, went through his adolescence, became a young man, got married, fathered two children, and became a very famous woodcutter, designing artistic woodcuts. And that was, a, that was an art, art form that was more popular in those days. So these things are in museums. I think it's a beautiful story of the dedication of these researchers who were not out there to make money on it. They were really out there to save lives. It's very inspiring. Yeah, that's a great story. And that led to a Nobel Prize win. Is that correct? They did get the Nobel Prize for the discovery of insulin. And, and here we are, 100 years later, with mostly wonderful news. I have to say, here in this time of COVID, I think we need to hear most of the good news, which is this is a completely curable disease. Diabetics now go on to lead completely full and healthy lives. It's still not easy to manage, but with the subsequent enormous modifications that have been made both to the insulins themselves and to insulin delivery systems, we now have something we never had, which is type 1 diabetics that are living into old age, 70, 80, 90. I had a patient who lived into her 90s. She was diagnosed as a young girl. She had her diabetes over 75 years. And I'll tell you, she was a vigorous, wonderful woman with a big family. And she got the Joslin Clinic 75-year medal. Dr. Joslin was one of the first researchers and started the first diabetes clinic in this country. And his clinic, of course, is still there, the famous Jocelyn Clinic in New York. And they now give a special gold medal to anyone who lives for 50 years with type 1 diabetes. And they give a 75-year, not only to recognize the accomplishment of that patient and their physicians and their families, but because they're collecting data on those patients who survive to try to figure out how were these patients with this very, very difficult disease treated with pretty crude all we had, insulin at the beginning, and who have gone through all the various changes? What was different about them? And they are still collecting that data. But it was also really moving to, we got her medal and we gave it in my office and her children and her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, sat in the waiting room and listened to her story of what it was like and what happened to her. So amazing. there's a great history there. Okay, so... Let me ask you this then. This may be a silly question. So type 1 diabetes always starts in childhood, right? When adults get diabetes, is it always type 2? Is that the delineation? That may be a silly question, but... No, it's not silly at all. There's a surprising answer. We used to think that, but that's not true. This is an unusual disease that can actually occur at any time. I've had patients as old as 91 diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Wow extremely rare. But when a very thin patient presents with severe hyperglycemia and weight loss and their antibodies are positive, that's diagnostic of type 1. There are special antibodies that one can measure, as well as certain genetic predispositions. No one really knows what uncovers and leads to type 1 diabetes, but we do know that there is a certain, let's put, genetic predisposition that's common in 
many, but not all of the type 1 diabetic patients that we study. But there may be something else that flips the switch to express the immunologic attack that occurs on the pancreas and destroys these particular cells called the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. And we luckily have a great excess of insulin, most of us, probably because it's such an important hormone. But by the time a patient really presents with severe high blood sugars, the disease has been silent for a period of time because there was that excess capacity. By the time they become hyperglycemic, that means high blood sugars with the side effects of high blood sugars, those patients have usually lost like 90 or 95% of their insulin secretory capacity. So that is why we can't reverse it in general in its current stage of diagnosis. There's a big study going on called TrialNet, and increasingly when patients are diagnosed with type 1, family members are screened. I don't want to give you the impression that universally we can screen and detect and prevent, but there are a few studies suggesting that there may be some immunologic agents that could be useful in preventing the onset in a susceptible before they have full-blown disease. Wow. Okay. The hooker is that these medications could have side effects. So you want to be sure you're not giving the youngster medication that's going to have side effects unless you're really sure you're preventing disease. So this is a very, very complex issue. But to circle back, I think I wanted to make sure I've left you with the correct impression. One can't separate type 1 and type 2 by age. But in general, it's a disease of younger individuals. It can occur as young as six months, although that's very rare, and it can occur unusually in the eighth or ninth decade of life. But usually it's in children and young adults and young to middle age adults. Okay. Well, thank you for clearing that up. I appreciate it. So you've told us the history of insulin. So can you now fast forward us through the years to present day on how insulin therapy has evolved since that initial discovery and what insulin means to people living with diabetes. I mean, it is life-saving, right? It is life-saving. And, and I also want to tell you, Bill, that it's life-saving not only for type 1s, but for many type 2 patients as well. Because type 2, which we don't always get into in these discussions of insulin, but we should. Remember, again, those patients, because in the past they often succumbed to the complications of type 2 diabetes early when it was more poorly controlled than it is now. They had heart disease, they had kidney problems, blindness, loss of vision. Now many of those complications are prevented. They're living long lives. They get into the phase of insulin deficiency, not only insulin resistance. Type 2 is marked by both insulin resistance and insulin deficiency. And when patients are living long lives, at, they get to a point, the type 2s, where they need insulin too. And this is wonderful. They don't always need the same complex regimens that type 1s need, but sometimes they do need intensive insulin. What we've learned over the decades is that a single shot of long-acting insulin, which is all we had at the beginning, is not physiologic. That's not how insulin works in our own bodies. In our own bodies, our pancreas is always making a little bit of insulin all the time, even when we're not eating just to keep our metabolism and our blood sugars stable. And then every time we get to a meal, our 
pancreas secretes an extra burst of insulin to cover the fuel that's coming from that food, the glucose. Eventually, things get broken down to glucose as the basic fuel. So we have tried to mimic that with the creation of both specific insulins that have long-acting properties and can be given as a single dose or twice a day as a basal, what we call basal insulin. And now there are also a number of short-acting insulins, and those are useful and given before meals, before snacks, so that patients are able to utilize all their fuel. Now, you said there's medication that can help regulate people over a longer period of time. And then there's also one that you can take right before mealtime to give an insulin boost. And now, Bill, there are insulins coming out and they're almost here. There's a weekly insulin that's just coming out. That's very, very exciting. That's going to be great for some patients. There is inhaled insulin. The safety long-term is still being studied, but it's on the market. It's a wonderful agent as well, and it's an adjunct. In certain particular clinical situations, it provides benefit. So I think the advantage here is for type 1s and people who have significant insulin deficiency to be seeing physicians who are familiar with these different insulins as well as insulin delivery devices, right? In the old days, needles that our grandmothers used that had to be sterilized at about an inch and a half long, glass syringes, down to then the development of these tiny little syringes with tiny little needles. We have insulin pens, which are have a little cartridge and look much like a ballpoint pen with a little needle at the end of it. And Insulin can be delivered very conveniently without having to carry bottles and syringes around with those pens. There are smart pens that have a little computer and Bluetooth in them, essentially, and they give insulin by direction according to one's blood sugar. They make some calculations and recommendations, and they give insulins in in even a more sophisticated way that's very helpful. And of course, we have insulin pumps, which are small devices that have a reservoir of insulin, and a patient wears that pump with a small subcutaneous needle under the skin that's taped down, and they get their insulin continuously, and they do not give injections. And that usually is an automated device, and most of them now are associated with a continuous glucose monitor. So the monitor is always checking the blood sugar. It's talking to the insulin pump. The insulin pump is responding to that and adjusting the insulin every few minutes. So that's what is called the artificial pancreas, if you've heard that word. And that's called an automated insulin device. So that's where we've gone. So it's been a big journey. Amazing, this journey, hearing you talk about basically the thick goo that they were trying to inject 100 years ago to today with all the things you just listed. Just absolutely amazing. So let me ask you this then, last question, Dr. Gaudiani, and thank you so much for your time as always. Can you talk about the diabetes care at Marin Health specifically in this 100th year anniversary? Is there anything new you'd like to share with us? How has this changed the way you're treating patients today? We're lucky here. We're in a place in the country where many, many patients have insurance. Many people, most people have some access to medical care. And here in Marin County and within Marin Health, 
I was fortunate to be able to co-found the Braden Diabetes Center with Mr. Braden, which opened its doors just eight years ago. But I've been here now 35 years practicing even before the Braden Center. You know, the Braden Center and Marin Health made a big effort to recognize the 100th year of insulin this year. We've reviewed all our insulin protocols. We actually have banners and pins, and we've had a series of lectures. We had an amazing fall fest with a speaker. We have a fall fest every year with a huge academic speaker, and we had Dr. Jay Schuyler, who was an international speaker, talk about the future of type 1 diabetes insulin. And that was a fantastic talk in October. So we have marked that. We are trying to improve our intra-hospital diabetes care all the time with our diabetes care program and our glucose management team there, as well as the outpatient team at Braden. We're opening up a dietary clinic for foot wellness, which includes patients on insulin, of course, and patients who are not on insulin. But I would say there's just more awareness and more commitment to the patients with diabetes to help them. As we say in our motto, travel through life well with diabetes. I just want to say one thing, though. This is not the case uniformly, even in our country, much less in the world. Diabetes is a disease that's still killing many, many, many people. And unfortunately, even though insulin's been around for 100 years, insulin access is very limited. Insulin that used to cost 60, 50 years ago, 75 cents for a bottle, now costs $400. And many patients will need five bottles, six bottles a month if they're on full insulin. So you can imagine what happens if you don't have insurance. It's impossible. Right. So there are the most frequent cause of people dying of diabetic ketoacidosis is no access to care. And unfortunately, children still die of this disease. This is what is the heartbreaking thing. In diabetic ketoacidosis, not because we don't have the treatment, but because they don't have access to insulin. So this is something that's coming before Congress, and my colleagues were actually talking about it this morning. We are increasingly trying to make politicians aware that insulin is not an option. It's a life necessity for for many patients, and we have to do better for our patients in terms of access to care and access to supplies. It's already an enormously difficult disease to treat at its best, but people need access to care and supplies. Of course, that's expensive and complex. But I think there's more awareness, Bill. That's that's the encouraging part. And many more people, including politicians, are realizing this and trying to support our efforts. So I guess the bottom line is good, but the parenthesis is there's still a whole lot more to do. Right. Well, at least people like you have identified this and are bringing it to politicians who can hopefully write policy and make changes because you're right. You said this was kind of a complex problem. Well, when you put it in this way, it's not very complex. These children need insulin, right, to live. Absolutely. And access to care should be there for everyone. It should be. And then then the data is really very clear that ethnic disparity absolutely correlates with mortality. Health inequality in this country and around the world, quite frankly, has to be addressed. We have to talk about these things and we have to stand up and we have to fight for health equality and get these changes made so we all can live in a more equitable society, especially in America. 
That's what we want for our children and our grandchildren. And we have to look at history, I think, and realize we can't stand aside from other countries. That's so true. And I think it's just so short-sighted not for us to recognize that. But of course, these are economic decisions that are vastly complex. Nonetheless, I think we're in conversation, and I want to really thank you for having a program that gives us a chance to talk about it, to talk about the positives, to talk about the progress, and to remind us all of where we still have to go and work. I'm really dedicated to this. My team is, I think, Marin Health has made huge strides in focusing on diabetes. And as opposed to 10 years ago, you know, diabetes is its own service line at Marin Health now, both with inpatient and outpatient care that we provide at Braden. And all the physicians, nurses, and health practitioners are so much more aware and have really been tremendously on board with my efforts to improve things for our community and for the North Bay. We applaud you for that. 35 years at Marin Health uh, is just amazing and dedicating your life to diabetes research and treatment and helping individuals. It's just an amazing story to hear where we were and where we are today with all of the advancements. But still, as you have told us, a lot more ground to cover. So, so important to remember that as well. We're getting there, but we've got to make health more equitable for everybody so they can get this life-saving care. So thank you, Dr. Gaudiani. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you for uh, sharing your insight and your history lesson with us. It's uh, very important. You've summarized that so well, Bill. It's an honor to be on your show again and to hear your expertise. I know you do so much work in this area and help get the word out to folks. And for myself, I'll just say it's been an honor taking care of patients in Marin for this long. And I can also say it's been a joy. My patients are my friends. In the old days, we didn't have pediatric endocrinologists, and I used to see even the young children. And now they're grown adults. They're amazing. They're parents themselves and have taught me so much about courage and persistence. So let's hope that we keep moving forward. I know that we will. And I really, really appreciate the opportunity to share some time with you this morning. Yeah, you bet. And we appreciate you and uh Everything you do at Marin Health and the Braden Diabetes Center. Dr. Gaudiani, thank you so much again. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now. Have a great day. It's always great to talk to people that are so passionate about what they do. And that's what you find when you talk to the health professionals at Marin Health. And once again, that was Dr. Linda Gaudiani. And for more information, you can always visit mymarinhealth.org. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and check out the full podcast library for topics of interest to you. This is The Healing Podcast brought to you by Marin Health. I'm Bill Klaparoth. Thanks for listening.